Howdy, folks, and thanks for tuning in to the 14th episode of Rediscover the Winds, a Wyoming history podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kirsten Blyle. And I'm Zach Larson. Both Kirsten and I work for the Fremont County Museum System located in the heart of West Central Wyoming. Our county museum system has three museums in it, the Riverton Museum, the Dubois Museum, and Wind River Historical Center, the Fremont County Pioneer Museum. Using artifacts from our three museums and interviews with experts, we're here to discover and in some cases rediscover the quirky, the heart-wrenching, the fascinating stories of Fremont County, Wyoming, and the American West. Today's episode is brought to you by Mick Pryor, a financial advisor with Edward Jones. We all have financial goals in every stage of life, from almost newlywed to two toddlers that might someday want to go to school to I don't want to work until I'm 173 years old. Long-term goals mean long-term plans. Let Mick Pryor, your Edward Jones financial advisor, help you accomplish these goals. Call or stop in and let them know you heard about them on this podcast. Last month, we talked about wildfire season in the upper Wind River Valley, Fremont County, and all of western Wyoming. We had two guests that helped illustrate exactly what wildfire season looks like to us. Carl Browneyes, who spent his career in the Forest Service, and Johanna Thompson of the Dubois Museum, who has been, well, shall we say, up close and personal to wildfires in the past, chimed in with their experiences of wildfires in the United States western parts and really uh, lit things up for us. Additionally, we released both of the full interviews as bonus episodes, so if you haven't listened to them yet, do so now. They're at our Facebook page and on pretty much any podcast platform you can find. And now September's in full swing, which means the kids are back in school, the leaves are starting to change, and temperatures are dropping. This last September also marks the 66th year since the discovery of uranium in the Gas Hills area, just about 40 miles east of Riverton. We'll get a bit into the history of Wyoming's uranium industry in a bit, but to get straight to the point, one of the results of that industry was that thousands of people, workers and their families, moved to new communities in the middle of the Gas Hills. That's right, guys. That empty sagebrush desert that you find at the end of the Gas Hills Road was once a thriving and vibrant community. Some estimates put the peak population of the community in excess of 2,000. In the 1960 census, Gas Hills was the third largest town in Fremont County, with a population of nearly 1,200 people. And the kids in the Gas Hills needed to learn their RWAs. RWAs. You know, their readings, their writings, and their arithmetics. Ah, got it. So we thought it would be fun to combine our episode about the uranium industry with back-to-school season and talk about what school was like in this new uranium community. And to help us do that, we've asked Willie Peden to join us on this month's episode. He was a school teacher in the Gas Hills during that, that school's final years, and before that, he, he worked in the uranium industry. Um, we'll jump into that conversation in a little bit, but let's have a little bit of background. During World War II, the U.S. government carried the Manhattan Project to build the world's first atomic weapon. It culminated with the atomic bombings of two Japanese cities, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Let's listen to President Harry Truman uh, as he announces the first of these bombings. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb, 
It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. We have spent more than $2 billion on the greatest scientific gamble in history, and we have won. But the greatest marvel is not the size of the enterprise, its secrecy, or its cost, but the achievement of scientific brains in making it work. So historian Paul Boyer writes that the atomic age, quote, burst upon the world with terrifying suddenness. The success of maintaining the bomb's secrecy meant that the announcement by President Truman was the first time that most people had ever heard of such a weapon. As the world began to cope with the new nuclear reality, many came to see the atomic bomb as a necessary, though perhaps unfortunate, step in the process of creating what Boyer called a techno-atomic utopia. At the dawn of the new atomic age, there was literally nothing that the atom could not accomplish. Cars that would run forever without needing new fuel, electricity that was too cheap to meter, and according to a socialist pamphlet in 1946, nature would be transformed into the servant of man, giving him food infinitely beyond the capacity of human appetite, clothing far more abundant than he can wear, and homes for all to fill our streets with palaces. They were pretty optimistic back then. A little bit optimistic. And for a while, when the United States had a monopoly on atomic weapons technology, it seemed like the threat of atomic retaliation would maintain world peace, even eliminating the need for large armies. But this world ended suddenly in August of 1949, much earlier than the U.S. intelligence expected, when the Soviet Union detonated its first nuclear test weapon, nicknamed Joe one Soon, the two superpowers and later other nations found themselves building, a mass- building up massive stockpiles of nuclear weapons and pushing the power of these weapons even higher. Combined with research into civilian uses for nuclear technology, the nuclear arms race created massive demand for uranium. Once thought to be uncommon, the newly created United States Atomic Energy Commission, or AEC, created incentives for the discovery of domestic uranium sources. In addition to a healthy price for produced ore, the AEC offered a bonus of $10,000, roughly the cost of an average new home at the time, for bringing a new, previously unworked uranium deposit into production. Soon, the whole country was carrying Geiger counters with them everywhere they went. Fast forward to September 1953. Joseph Stalin died earlier in the year, but the nuclear arms race continued full steam. The previous Christmas, Riverton's school nurse, Maxine McNeese, had given her husband, Neil, a machine shop owner, a Geiger counter for Christmas. The couple had made a verbal agreement with their friend, Lowell Moorfield, that they would be equal partners in uranium prospecting. If one of us found it, Neil said, we were both there. A company newsletter later described what happens as follows. September 13, 1953, dawned as just another sunny and warm Indian summer day, the type of day for which Wyoming is particularly noted, ideal for picnics, antelope hunting, and prospecting. So thought Maxine and Neil McNeese, the latter a veteran hunter and prospector, loading up the old beat-up Dodge Power Wagon with a lunch, their hunting equipment, and of course, their small portable Geiger counter. They headed east from Riverton over a faint wagon and oil truck track, winding its torturous way over sand hills, sagebrush flats, and dry sand washes. Their immediate objective for the day was an isolated area marked on a sketchy map as the Gas Hills, a desolate, barren jumble of rolling sagebrush hills and eroded rocks approximately 50 miles from Riverton, uninhabited except for occasional seismograph crews, oil rigs, and of course many jackrabbits and antelope. Approaching the Gas Hills from the west, Neil tried out the Geiger counter on many of the eroded exposures, but no rewarding clicks came through. 
After eating their lunch on what is now known as Picnic Hill, Neil idly swept the surrounding country for antelope signs, meanwhile studying through his field glasses each rock exposure coming into his field of vision. He noted one particular spot about one half a mile away near the base of another small erosional remnant whose color appeared to be somewhat different than the surrounding area. He and Maxine strolled over, looked at the oddly colored sandstone, placed the Geiger counter on it, and the needle went off the dial. The seed was planted for the Great Gas Hills Industrial Complex. Have you ever tried to stroll across sagebrush <laughs> desert? Because it doesn't really go well. Yeah, it's uh, Yeah, it very much so. But their stroll ended up being very rewarding. And what a complex that area became. The McNeese's and Moorfields formed a company called Lucky Mitt. Mac and staked claims. They partnered with Utah Construction Company, which built the tunnels in Wind River Canyon, the Alaska Highway, and helped on the Hoover Dam. Lucky Mac built the first uranium processing mill in the Gas Hills, and many other mining companies followed. Soon the area was a bustling metropolis of mines, mills, mobile homes, and a few sites built buildings. At its peak, the Gas Hills area had three mills. Eventually, the Atomic Energy Commission began to allow private utility companies to develop nuclear power plants. And in 1976, General Electric, one of these companies, merged with Utah Construction. This was at that time the largest corporate merger in U.S. history, and the uranium properties in Wyoming were a key asset to the merger. As we talked about earlier, people came to work, and soon the Gas Hills was a town of sorts, with a post office, a school, even a few stores, bars, and restaurants. After a bit of a fight, the Gas Hills area was annexed into Fremont County School District Number 25. See, after the industry brought massive growth to Riverton and... The idea was that the cost to educate the uranium workers' children in the Gas Hills and in Riverton should be paid for by the royalties of the mining that brought them to that area. Lucky Mac even donated the use of its first office building to use as a school. But the district struggled to keep up with population growth, and at its peak, the school, a first to eighth grade school, had almost 200 students. For a time, the school coped with the overcrowding by having four grades meet early in the morning until 1, while the other four grades met from 1.15 until late in the evening. The principal even used his car as an office. But the uranium industry slumped in the 1960s as government stockpiles outpaced demand. And this slope corresponded with the near completion of the paved Gas Hills Road, which made commuting from Riverton to the area fairly easy. So when the industry boomed again in the 70s, the town and the Gas Hills stayed relatively small. Finally, as we talked about, clear back on episode five, the uranium industry shrank quickly in the early 1980s, and today, except for the paved road and the mines that are in various stages of reclamation, the Gas Hills today looks probably a lot like it did in 1953. And with all of that as a backdrop, let's go to our guest. Thank you for joining us, Willie. We're glad to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. So let's start and just have you kind of tell us about your history in the Gas Hills and, and you know, your, your working in the mill and all that kind of stuff. Okay. I went to the mill as a laborer in in uh, the late 1960s, 1968, and uh, it was uh, they were expanding the mill at the time, and so I only stayed a laborer for about two days, and then I became a mill learned how to be a mill operator. And I, I was a mill operator out there for about three years, and I saved up enough money to go back to school. knew I didn't want to work in the mill all my life, and so I went back to school and graduated from Brigham Young University with a degree in, in education. And the first job I found open was out of the Gas Hill School. They were expanding the school, making it bigger, uh, going from the two half days to a 
to full days. And so they needed a couple more teachers out there. They had just put an expansion on the school building out there, the old office building out there. And uh, so I was hired to teach fourth and fifth grade. And uh, it, at the time, was the highest beginning salary of any school in the state of Wyoming. I got $11,000 <laughs> plus a little bit of travel time. Mm-hmm. We, th- they had two teacherage houses out there. One of them they used as a, s- a supply house, and so nobody could live in it. And the other one was occupied by another teacher at the time. So everybody that taught out there lived in town. We commuted every day. Drove an old Ford car from Riverton out to uh, the school out there, and uh, then came back in the evening. Uh, made for kind of long days, but it was a, it was really a, it was really a good job for me and for my family. Mm-hmm. So, are you a native to Riverton? Uh, I, I was actually born in Lander, uh, middle of a blizzard in 1948, uh, and. We moved to Riverton when it boomed in the middle 1950s because of the because of the uranium mills. Uh, my dad had been working in Riverton and commuting back and forth and didn't like doing that, so we moved to Riverton in 1957. Uh, I pretty much lived in Fremont County all my life, Riverton and Lander, and uh, except for a period of time when I went to school, did a couple other things. How long was how long did it take to commute out there? Um, when we first started out there, the, the road was only paved halfway. Mm-hmm. And so that would slow you down. Uh, it took us about an hour and 10 minutes to go out there at the beginning. And then it was down to about 45 minutes when we, uh, when it was paved all the way, mm-hmm. we kind of pushed the speed limit a little bit. Oh yeah. That's sure. Wyoming. Yeah. 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 Nobody, no. nobody speeds on the gas hills road anymore. Oh, I'm sure that they don't. <laughs> I, Hopefully you have good suspension. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I won't disclose my record on that road because statute of limitations isn't up on that one. But um, so the school was in. Can can you just kind of describe the I guess the settlements, the town that was out there? Sure. There were there were two main camps. Uh, there was one at uh, Federal American Partners uh, Mill site, and then the other one was at the Lucky Mac site. There were a few people that lived up at the Union Carbide Mill, uh, but that was just a man camp up there. Uh, there were no families up there. And there were a couple of uh, there were a couple of ranches over on the Toronto County side. Um, the Lucky Mac camp was a little bit larger than the Federal American Partners uh, camp uh, because the Lucky Mac Mill was big. It was the biggest mill in the world at that time. Wow. Um, and and we probably had, oh, I'm guessing there were probably about 800 people living in the Lucky Mac camp at that time, and about 400 probably in the Federal American camp. So it was still a pretty sizable town at the time. It was. It was. Uh, school was was pretty good sized. Uh, we had uh, at at that time there were six grades. Uh, I had two grades, and then everybody else had just one. Mm-hmm. So you were doing double time. I was, yes, because <laughs> I was the new guy, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so with, you go to the end of the current Gas Hills Road. Um, Lucky Max on the left-hand side. That's where the mill was. The camp was on, mm-hmm. uh, you, you, you kind of go up over a hill, and, and you can look off to the left as the 
is where the old uh, mill site was. And the camp was on over probably another three quarters of a mile okay. over there. There's nothing left there at all. Yeah. And then, and then Federal, I guess, would have been on the right. Yeah, you would turn, you would turn to the right, and it was probably about two or three miles over yeah. to it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so were were there still like was there still a st- I know at some point the, the Gas Hills had a, like a small grocery store, a couple of that sort of thing. Was any anything? None like of that, that was left. There? The post office was still out there. Okay. It was a uh, it was right next to the school, out there. But uh, the all of those things were gone. There was a bar right where the Really? Got to have the important stuff out there. Yeah, there was, and uh, Fremont County put put an end to that. It was a it was kind of a problem, <laughs> and and so they that that was that was uh, ended. Yeah, um, the uh, little store had disappeared, but there were a couple of people you know that had kept some supplies out there for people you know a loaf of bread, and mm-hmm. some milk, that kind of thing that they would. And there was always somebody going back and forth, especially after the road was paved all the way. Yeah. People would go back and forth, and and they could bring stuff back and forth. And it was was a pretty tight-knit community. Uh, The people took care of each other. Uh, It had kind of a randy uh, uh, reputation that by the last few years out there was undeserved. Uh, there were there were no tr- there was not trouble out there. Mm. Uh, you know, people got along well uh, because it was families. Yeah, uh, you know, and they everybody mm. was working class, mm-hmm. and they just they got along well. The company out there uh, provided you know everything except uh, I know I th- yeah they even had gas natural gas out there mm. uh, water uh, all of those things and so the mobile homes were pretty comfortable. Uh, it's not a comfortable place, generally. Uh, one of the problems we had with the school was how uh, when the wind would blow it and it would get really cold, it was hard to heat. And uh, we would lose school days because of how cold it was inside the school or how much the wind blew and blew the snow over the road and we couldn't get there or couldn't get back, yeah. that kind of thing. Sometimes couldn't even get the bus from uh, Federal American over to the school. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, the kids were, it was a great place to teach. Uh, the kids were well-behaved. You know, in a little while, you knew every, all of the parents. Uh-huh. And you could uh, you could talk to the parents, and there's some of them I'm still friends with, mm-hmm. you know, uh, after all these years. And a lot of the kids I'm still friends yeah. with. I still have contact with them. Yeah. That's awesome. Did the kids and did the working families, did they come from around here or was this a attraction from all over the country? It was attraction from all over. Uh, probably about half of them, though, were local, uh, you know, longtime local people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of more people I'd grown up with. Okay. So how did the school differ from schools in the more conventional communities? You said you had, you probably had more snow days just because of lack of. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and we would, uh, we a lot of times would, uh, towards the end of the school year, we would have Saturdays where we would have school uh, just to make up for that. uh, Because it was a a state school, Mm -hmm. uh, you had a certain number of days that you had to have. And so we would have snow days or sometimes we would lengthen the school day. Uh, towards the end of the school year, always, yeah. Uh, and the other thing that was, uh, by the time that I started teaching, all of the schools had, you know, multiple uh, classes in each grade, and we had 
we had combined classrooms still out there. I did anyway. So my first professional gig was a, I taught social studies in Spanish and welding in a little school of about 50 K through 12 students in Montana. And that, I know that in, in especially in small communities, the school is like a, a, a focal point for community cohesion. Uh, how was Gas Hills? That's, 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 that's true. Uh, you know, we went, uh, guy by the name of Stu Griffith who taught with me out there. Uh, we we st- started a uh, um, community uh, basketball league and some things like that. And uh, just because of uh, the school being the focal point, it, it was well attended. Um, when we had Christmas programs or Easter programs or any kind of school activity, everybody came. You know, it would we had it. We didn't have a gym, but we had a lunch, large lunchroom, and it would be completely full. Hmm. Uh, you know, you would you would set up all the chairs that there were, and people would be standing. It was a, it was it was great because we got a lot of support because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know the school in Dubois is still a focal point. Um, football games, basketball games. Yeah. Yeah. I moved to Dubois in January of 2018, and people were talking about basketball games, and I'm like, you don't have any kids that are attending. Why are you going? Because <laughs> yeah. Big yeah. in big cities where yeah. I came from, it was just you went if you had a friend or a relative in. But here, that's still very much their focal yeah. point of the community. I think. Yeah, it went well. Wind River out at Pavilion, it's still that same way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the the town was mostly um, mobile homes, but each of the camps had a few site builts. Yeah. Can you just kind of paint a picture of the of the those areas? Were they kind of bleak looking, or was it? Boy, in the wintertime it was. <laughs> I, I mean, people tried to, uh, you know, they tried to plant grass and they tried to do some of those kind of things. But, yeah, it was kind of yeah. bleak looking. Uh, fortunately, I think most of the people that lived out there uh, would, uh, they liked to do a lot of outdoor things, hunting. And yeah. there were some places you could fish out there, still are, uh, if you know where to go. <laughs> uh, and just to wander around the hills out there and sightsee and go four-wheeling and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, it was kind of bleak. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people chose not to live there uh, and would live in town and commute. Uh, Lucky Mac had a bus that they, or buses that they would mm-hmm. run for each shift, of both the mine and the mill, and a lot of people chose to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but there were, most of the people lived out there, they liked it. It did, mm-hmm. and it, but it was kind of bleak looking. Yeah, that planting grass. I mean, <clears throat> Gas Hill is not that far from Riverton, but for some reason, it sounds like a losing battle to try to have a nice lawn in in Gas Hills. Yeah, it's sand. Yeah, you know, it really is sand. Yeah, yeah. I know that. I know. It, I and I can't remember the year, but I know that at least for a while the Riverton Garden Club would go out to to Federal's camp to judge landscaping, and they'd give you know free rent for two months for the winners and things like that. So they, I know that at least in, in part of the time they tried to encourage that. Yeah. Um, it, it, it really, it was kind of a, it was a tough battle. Yeah. But uh, you had to admire them. They, they really tried. Yeah. To, mm-hmm. to There's actually home. still a few trees out at the federal camp. Mm-hmm. Out there, all, all there is left of that area. But I think so. Yeah. yeah. You have to know what's there, where yeah. it was to, to find it out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you came in 1978, you said, to be the teacher? Yes. 
Okay. And so we talked about on a previous episode of our podcast, the kind of the rise and fall of the uranium industry in Fremont County and in the United States too. So it was 1980 that really things took a turn for the worst um, with the uranium industry. And so then by when about did the town finally shut down? When was it Dunskies and I, you know I'm not, I can't remember for sure. I was brought into town that the the uh, Three Mile Island incident in in uh, Pennsylvania uh, was the beginning of the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could see that things were going to go bad, and the companies started to uh, just to shrink, and uh, so the a lot of the people moved into town. Uh, the school was shrinking. Uh, a a job opened up in Riverton here, and they uh, told me I was volunteering to take it. Mm-hmm. So I came into town, and probably by the next year, there was only one or two teachers out there that were doing all six grades. Wow! And then uh, the following year, there was nothing out there. It was mm-hmm. gone. The school was the left the building because it actually belonged to Lucky Mac, to the company out there. Uh, and the school was stayed out there until probably for another ten years or so, but then it was torn down when they when they took the mill down. Mm-hmm. I guess so. Then after that, you you just taught in Riverton for the rest of your career. For Is the that, rest of my career. Okay. Yeah. How long did you retire? Uh, I've been retired from the school district for about uh, seven years now. Okay. Uh, I'm, but I didn't really retire. I I worked for the Fremont County Weed and Pest for quite a long time and we went out there and did a lot of surveys and things out there to see uh if there were invasive species coming up out there that's that's what was my last experience out there huh so you kind of went full circle i mean you started out as a a worker a mill operator and then the teacher and then you came back to yeah work on some of that other stuff how many non-trailer homes were were out there do you think I, you know, I can't remember for sure. Lucky Mac had the most. I think they had four. Okay. Uh, and then the school district owned a couple that they put up out there. And then over at Federal American Partners, there might have been two or three. Okay. There weren't very many. Uh, almost all of the uh, salary hands, white hats they called them, <laughs> uh, lived in town. So what what was their construction like? I know like Jeffrey City had a lot of a lot of their stuff was kind of the Boise Cascade modular yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's that's what those were. Okay, they they were that type of thing, uh, prefabs. Um, some of them even were metal. I think the ones at Lucky Mac were metal. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah. So did the people working at these places? Did they think flying cars and? food that never ran out was that a thing that they were still hoping for or was that a long gone dream it was a job for them Mm -hmm. it was a well-paying job that was available here uh so that's why the local people came and that's why everybody came in it was a job a good job and especially in the mid-70s the the rest of the country was kind of in an economic recession and so the yeah the uranium industry in wyoming was was kind of a bright spot everywhere else is Mm -hmm. falling apart so it was uh yeah, it, 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 but they, that's way they, that's what they looked at it as. Yeah. So what happened after you got out of sixth grade? Well, they it, it, for a long time it was eighth grade, okay. and they would they were bust in to town mm-hmm. and came into Riverton, uh, went to high school in Riverton. Uh, you know that would be an hour 
commute for a little kid on a bus, so they yeah. didn't want the the younger kids to do that. And and yeah, I thought it was good. And you look in in old newspapers, especially before the when they were really pushing for for building the the Gas Hills Road um, in the '60s, early '60s. There's there's a great quote from the state superintendent Velma Linford, and she talks about how the high school kids are riding two hours to Riverton and two hours back each day, and they end up battered, and it's not good for them. So we need a paved road, gosh darn it! And uh, so I mean, even I guess even during even when the road wasn't paved, they were still they were doing that, which is yeah, um, just kind of an interesting contrast in Jeffrey City high school aged kids would they'd leave on on Sunday night. And they would board with a family in Lander all week long. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, I can't imagine myself at 14 kind of being, like, on my own, in, in a manner of speaking. And then if you were in sports, you, you'd maybe ask your your host family if you could stay there all week. But you you might go a week or two without seeing your family, which would be kind of crazy. Until the high school there was built in the late 70s. But, yeah. Part of that school was never used. The Jeffrey City? They built it, and then everything. I mean, it, the uranium industry just vanished, mm-hmm. and and so there were part of, parts of that school that were never used. Yeah, that's interesting. That's uh, and it's still out there. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Well, they, they do have some elementary classes yep. that they have in holding that school, but yeah, it's not what it was, and definitely did not turn into what they hoped it would be. No, that's right. I would say, yeah. So. I don't know. Do you have any other? I have another question. Okay. So, what kind of reclamation work is being done out there? Uh, they're they're uh, attempting to get it back to a, a a state that would resemble the original state. Uh, there were some really really deep holes out there, and some of them are still out there mm-hmm. that have water in the bottom of them, and uh, they are attempting to get those back and i think pretty much have have finished mm-hmm. with most of it um the mill sites have been you can't even tell where the where the mills were mm. um or or the camps either all of the pipes have been taken up the uh any foundations any streets that they had those kind of things are all gone wow uh they uh, you can sort of see them on satellite images. You can, yeah. you can see kind of an outline of where they were. You can see Federal Americans, uh, sewer ponds. but and, and if you really know what you're looking for on the ground, you can see them. But you have to, yeah. you have, to have a GPS and know exactly where you are before it even becomes hmm. any kind of obvious. When I went, worked for Weed and Pest, we had to do a bunch of work out there because some of the, some of the equipment that had been brought in for reclamation was... Uh, contaminated with uh, invasive species and we had to go out there and get rid of them or else they would have taken over the whole countryside mm-hmm. if an invasive species ends up in a radioactive area does it grow legs and I don't, I don't <laughs> go king so. kong on tokyo <laughs> you know that one of the things that's interesting is that the background radiation is so high out there that um, when you're working out there you picked up as much radiation as if you flew across the United States back and forth constantly. Huh. Wow. At, at high altitudes. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. So should we look out for two headed ducks and <laughs> questionable antelope? I don't know. Almost all of us that worked out there are mm-hmm. in a program with the US government right now where they monitor our health and where we're uh 
uh, where we're compensated for having worked out there. Wow. That's kind of crazy to yeah. think about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everybody that I worked with in the, in the mill is dead. Hmm. Um, I don't think there are any of the guys left. Wow. Um, but I was one of the youngest ones out there. Yeah, so. yeah I know it was a... Uh became less of an issue over time but especially in the early years they uh there's, there's i forget the name of the book but um it was it was a cold war and they needed uranium and they were worried if people found out how dangerous it was they would not want to even go near it even though with with relatively simple methods you can kind of control exposure to radiation and make it quite a bit mm -hmm. safer but some of those like late forties and early fifties miners tell story, well told stories. I doubt there's many of them left about seeing who can blow the hottest, most radioactive breath into their Geiger counter at the end of a shift. There's, I read one story and I can't remember what book this was in, but some dude in on the Colorado plateau was just stashing yellow cake under his bed until his hair started to fall out and all kinds of stuff. What was he planning to do with it? I don't know. Well, it was valuable. So, yeah. so, you know, you could, could be sold yeah so it's uh yeah that, that it's and, and i think things the safety record improved a little bit over over the years but it was especially those early years were kind of well, dangerous yeah and and nobody really understood mm -hmm. the long term the really long term you know yeah. it, the immediate danger was maybe understood but long term didn't didn't mm -hmm. so so if given the choice between a uranium mine and like some other natural gas mines and things like that, would people prefer the uranium to the natural gas or was there just because the uranium was in such high demand, they just the better pay? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, very few of the mines were underground and it was relatively safe to mine it by the open pit method. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they did. Down on the plateau down there, those a lot of those were underground mines, yeah. and they were really mining some hot stuff down there. Actually, some stuff called pitch blend that was really hot. Mm -hmm. um, all of ours up here was not mm -hmm. hot. Yeah. But they didn't mine it out, still out there. Mm -hmm. And anything that's operating out there, they're using what's called in situ mines and taking it out that way. Which is basically just a an injection well. They inject a solution of, of water and chemicals that dissolves the uranium. They pump it out, goes through an ion exchange. Mm -hmm. I know the term. I don't know what that actually means because I'm not a scientist. But they, they extract the uranium from the solution and then recycle it. And, and uh, basically there's no human contact really with the, with, with the uranium. It's... Uh, no, it was cleaner than any kitchen I ever saw when I went out, when I went to the where they were doing that. Wow. I think it's really interesting to actually note uh, a mirror image of the Tyhack camps. It was a different, de it was different decades for sure, but the way you talk about um, the hard to reach, the, I mean, there were whole towns out there and the communities mm -hmm. really revolved around them and the Tyhacks were cutting the trees, the uranium mines were mining uranium and working mills and Tyhacks were working sawmills yeah. and things like that. And I just, listening to you talk about teaching kids and just the relationships and things like that really made me think of Du Bois's own history with 
those yeah, outlying I th- camps. I think that's a. I think that's really a, a, an accurate uh, way to to do to see that. Mm-hmm. I mean, and yeah, barely anything exists anymore of the tie hat camps. We get some structures, some cabins out there, but you really don't know unless you've been there or mm-hmm. know exactly where you're going to go find them. We do have, I was going to ask, have you been to the Riverton Museum to see their uranium exhibit? I have. And what do you think about that? I was very impressed with it. Awesome. Yeah. We, we just, uh, for those that don't know, we just inaugurated our brand new exhibit that's significantly larger than our old one, and we're, we're constantly adding to it as well, and, and it's got... Um, among other things, it's got some actual yellow cake that you can look at, a small enough quantity that it's not gonna, not gonna hurt you. I'm not gonna sleep with it under my pillow, but, but it's not gonna hurt it's you. It's probably no more dangerous than some of the other stuff in museum collections. Or, uh, you know, eating off of a Fiesta ware. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of the, side note, some of the, uh, old Fiesta ware, some of the reds and yellows used uranium ore as a, a glaze. So um, they glow under black light. And uh, it's probably not true, but I, I have these dreams that you could have like self-microwaving hot dogs on your Fiesta Ware bowl. You just set it on there and it gets warm. I don't think that's how it works. Um, our exhibit also has two three-foot-by-six-foot Google Earth satellite images that we've printed off so you can really get your nose close and see where some of these these places are and if you stop by, come come find me, and I'll show you some of my favorite stuff that's out there, and then you can get in your your jeep and head out there and find them. Mm-hmm. I was really impressed with the with the museum's exhibits. I've Thank really you. been. Well, we're always working to put up new exhibits and tell more history of this county because it's there's some amazing history out there. And we want to thank you so very much for this great conversation that we've had with you on the history of the Gas Hills community. Thank you for yeah. letting me be here. We have several more podcast episodes planned for you guys. Next month, we'll be going spooky with a collection of legends, ghost stories, and truly terrifying events from Fremont County's past. If you liked what you heard today, like us on Facebook at Rediscover the Winds Wyoming History Podcast. On our Facebook page, we share pictures of the people, places, and things we talk about in episodes, and we give you guys sneak peeks into the future episodes as well. We also have a YouTube page, a Stitcher account, an iTunes account, and are now hosted on County 10's podcast page. And while you are on 10Cast, subscribe to some of the network's other podcasts. There is something for everyone. So if you've already followed us on our various platforms, thank you. Your support means the world to us, and we hope you guys get a chance to support us in other ways. Uh, especially in visiting our museums and attending our upcoming events, which are as follows. We do have plenty of great events coming up. Summer is coming to an end if the snow on the mountaintops are any indicators, and fall is now in full swing. Bailey Tire and Auto Service and Pit Stop Travel Center sponsors the following children exploration programs. On October 12th at the Riverton Museum, we have our fifth annual Fall Fun Fest. That is a, a lot of alliteration. So it's, it's basically a kid's event. You come to the museum, you get a bag full of treats and goodies, and uh, you know we'll have some, some games and some just lots of fun stuff. It'll be, it'll be a great time. It's, it's, it's geared for, for young kids. It's not too spooky. So that's, uh, that's again, that's at the, the Riverton Museum pretty much all day on October 12th. 
And then soon after that, the Dubois Museum is hosting our second annual pumpkin carving event on October 19th from 1 to 3 p.m. You can come learn about the history of pumpkin carving and how the residents of the Upper Wind River Valley celebrated this spooky month. The Dubois Museum will be providing pumpkins to participants to carve. Kids are free to participate. Adults are $6. Call the museum, Dubois Museum specifically, to reserve your pumpkin. The Wyoming Community Bank sponsors our Discovery Speaker Series, and those are all free and open to the public. And our upcoming Speaker Series event is at the Riverton Museum. We are definitely hitting the spooky month hard this this next month. Uh, Local educator Alma Law, who has made it quite the hobby of his to collect local ghost stories, is going to be uh, sharing some of those ghost stories with us on October 27th at 6, or October 17th, excuse me, at 6.30 p.m., and again, that is at the Riverton Museum. And then the Wind River Visitors Council sponsors the following adventure treks. On September 28th, 10 a.m. to a question mark number in the afternoon, uh, the Lander Museum is hosting a historic apple orchard tour in Sinks Canyon. Join the Pioneer Museum's last trek of the year. Jack States, historian, author, and apple grower, will take us on a tour of the old orchards in Sinks Canyon. It's $8 per person, and please call the Lander Museum to reserve your place in advance. And we are taking a bus from the museum, so come prepared to do that. Uh, also on September 28th, uh, the Riverton Museum is hosting a trek out to the J.B. Oakey Mansion. We are currently full for that event, but if you'd like to get on the waiting list and find out more information about that, please call us at the Riverton Museum. Thanks again to Willie Peden for sharing your knowledge and experiences with us. And thank you to listen, for listening to this, Wyoming, this episode of Rediscover the Winds, a Wyoming history podcast. I'm your host, Kirsten, from the Dubois Museum and Wind River Historical Center. And I'm Zach from the Riverton Museum. We look forward to continuing this adventure to rediscover the winds with you next time.